Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And And you're you're listening listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. On this episode, D is for Die Another Day again. That's right, we are throwing away our parachutes and diving headlong once more into the world of Pierce Brosnan's final James Bond film from 2002. My name is Tom Butler and joining me... As we paraglide on a frozen tsunami of nostalgia once again, is Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. (laughs) And a man who, when the sun goes down, feasts like there's no tomorrow, Mr. Tom Wheatley. You're getting weirder (laughs) with these every week. Thank you. Yes, hello. I've only just started. And then joining us for this audio equivalent of 14 months of waterboarding is journalist film critic and co-presenter of Clash of the Titles podcast. It's my old friend, Mr. Chris Tilley. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Tom. Uh, it's lovely to be here. Big fan of the podcast. So I'm honoured to be a guest, um, especially when we're talking about a film as special as Die Another Day. Are you ready to analyse this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that joke gets used every time anyone talks about uh, Die Another Day, doesn't it? So just to, before we kick off, just worth noting that this episode is probably coming out around the time that No Time to Die is coming out, but we haven't seen it yet because it's pre-recorded, so we won't be talking about No Time to Die in this episode. Uh, and also, if you want to learn about the making of Die Another Day, you need to listen to our previous episode where we talked about how the film was made in uh, in painful detail. <laughs> I think it was one of our longest episodes yet, wasn't it? So um, yeah. yes. So Brendan, do you want to kick things off? Yeah. So first off, Chris... Your entry into James Bond, what was the, the, the first film that you watched? Your, your favourite Bond actor and favourite Bond film? Oh, my word. Um, yeah. It was Moonraker or View to a Kill, because I'm that age where Moonraker was on the telly yeah. in the mid-80s and View to a Kill was coming out in the cinema. So those were my two favourites as a kid. Two of my least favourites now, although, you know, nostalgia's a dangerous thing. <laughs> so I find them very watchable. Yeah. I could just see all everything that's wrong with them now. I still love Sean Connery. I think he's probably my favourite Bond. Mm. Um, but I've been lucky enough, you know, as I've gotten a bit older and got into film journalism, I've visited a couple of Bond sets. So that's been sort of special and kept my love alive. I, I, I went to see some second unit stuff on Casino Royale. But more memorably, I went to um, visit the set of Quantum of Solace the day they announced the title, which was quite a strange moment because there was a big build-up and then the sheet came down and we saw the title and there was sort of laughter. 
and sort of a, a murmuring and a you could hear the scratching of the heads and people sort of googling the word quantum and yeah it was that was a particularly awkward day because i don't think it had the reaction that they wanted much like the film in fact so wait, you were on set watching it being filmed and then they announced the title as well? No, they took us on a tour of the sets and they tend to do it a day or two before they start principal photography. They have a big press conference right, right. at Pinewood. And so it was one of those days. They did the same for Die Another Day, except they didn't know the title of the film that day. So all the press were there the day before they started shooting and they still didn't have a title. Interesting. Ah. I, I remember that title getting released to the public and that was just widespread confusion. So... Being on set or being at the production areas, it must have been phenomenal. Yeah, it was like, is, is quantum big or small? No one was quite sure. It's a word that people don't use. <laughs> yeah. I still can't remember. <laughs> and that's that's something that um, Adam and Joe did a song, didn't they? The Song oh, yes. of Qualys. Something um, of Boris. Yeah, the, <laughs> based on the confusion of that. Yeah. So, Chris, you've been a journalist for a long time now mm. how much have you covered the bond films in the work that you've done over the past few years well i did i had to do some research today it turns out i've reviewed die another day oh wow it was one of, oh, one, perfect. of the, one, one of the first films i reviewed uh, i did not give it a particularly positive review i was unhappy with the villain i was unhappy with madonna i was unhappy with uh, the dialogue the character of jinx had and I was unhappy with the stuff that most people talked about in terms of the CGI and the car. Uh, so, yeah, it was funny looking back. I mean, it was a terribly, it was a very badly written review. I hope I've improved my writing in the last 20 years. But, yeah. Is, I this, put, is it still available online? No, thank God. Oh. I wouldn't be saying this, I don't think, if it was. Uh, yeah, that was, um, that was uh, when I worked for a magazine called Hot Dog, sort of mm. about 20 years ago. And then, yeah, and I actually reviewed the last Bond film. I think the most abuse I've ever taken in the comments section was when I didn't particularly like that it was the the first screening was in the UK anywhere in the world and so everyone every critic had to race home from that premiere to write the review and so I was up all night I probably got up at about three four in the morning and I took so much abuse from people telling me I was wrong but the only good thing about that was I knew that every single person who was making that comment had not seen the film because <laughs> we were the only audience that had seen it at that point but um yeah, I was I was disappointed with the last one, and so that's sort of been the last thing I've written about Bond, I think. But you did set visits for Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. Yes, yeah, Casino Royale, I can't even remember that well, but it was second unit. Uh, Daniel Craig wasn't there. I think it was Gary Powell maybe directing it, stuntman. And then, yes, as I say, the second the, the second one, it was more a press conference kind of day. It was viewing the sets and interviewing the cast, but not actually seeing anything because they weren't shooting yet. Interesting. When I contacted you about coming on, you did um, you express a particular interest in talking about this film, Die Another Day, particularly. Why why was that? Um, I don't know. I think because it's an interesting period for Bond, because it was the moment where Bond suddenly seemed out of date because of I think Jack Bauer and Jason Bourne had just come along. We were sort of it was shot it was shot sort of pre. 9-11 but it came out post 9-11 and it all seemed a little bit outdated I, th I feel I think that was an issue although it was a huge hit you know Pierce Brosnan lost the job off the back of this one and so I think it was an interesting transitional time and I, can, I think you can see it in the film a little bit where the tone is all over the place in terms of that opening scene feels quite relatively serious and it's it's pretty dark and then it almost turns into 
a sort of a camp romp. So it goes from a bit of Connery to a bit of more, and then it and then it literally becomes a cartoon. So I just I think there's a lot there's a lot to get our teeth into with this one. When was the last time you had watched it prior to recently watching it? So I assume you've watched it relatively recently. No. Uh, last time I watched it was it, I, it was I didn't review the theatrical release. It was the Blu-ray release, so it would have been six months after it came out in cinemas. And so, yeah, I would have watched it in my office at Hot Dog, written my review, and I haven't seen it since. Wowzers! Wow. So it was interesting. I sort of a twenty year later, sort of seeing if my opinions had changed on much, and it, some stuff it had changed actually. Based, you know, what, what I thought when I reviewed it then, and what I think now. I'm not as upset about the Invisible Car. Um, no. In terms of it as a concept, I just think visually that's probably the issue. But the idea isn't a terrible one. And it's not mm. that different or more far-fetched than half the stuff you see in a Bond film. So the yeah. fact that it got singled out, I just think I think it was mishandled rather than it was a bad idea in the first place. I don't know. What yeah, do you... we had a, a chat about I think Did we do this actually on the podcast last time? Or was it some separate conversation you and me had, Brendan, where I was talking about it's not the problem isn't with the invisible car as a concept it's just it was wasn't used properly if they've, if they've used it well it would have been fine but it just seemed almost like they'd just thrown it in and it didn't wasn't actually that useful the one time it was used in the in the script it was to drive slowly behind a couple of people invis- invisibly <laughs> it, was, it, it was almost useless it's oh, the problem is as well it's it's sort of one of many unforgivable clangers that happened throughout this film mm. um if it had been on its own i think like you said the concept itself is solid but if and if it had been on its own it might not have stood out so much but i think it almost became symptomatic of the wider issues with this film and it therefore became like the lightning rod for the criticism you know oh it's got the invisible car and that, that's the that's the kicking but we've i mean i think we um have found chris when we've revisited it recently and we have done a, a couple of times is that it's not as bad as we remember. Um, mm. And I don't know if that's sort of how you felt about it when you, Agreed. you watched it. Well, I gave it three stars at the time and I'd probably give it three stars again, I think. Yeah. Two and a half if I was allowed to. But when you say that about the invisible car, I think I think that it's a similar concept to the one Lee Winnell used in that Invisible Man movie last year. Yeah. And yet they made it believable in that film and in this one it just they just didn't get it right and so i think as you say i think it could have been it could have worked it it was just they just um dropped the ball in terms of you know how it was scripted and how it was presented visually no i was going to say uh, beyond the invisible car i do think it's a great bond car um and the way that it's used and the chase sequence that it's in i think it could have you know aside from the invisible stuff it is a fantastic sequence that it's used for but um yeah I guess the other thing I found interesting watching at this time is how much Purvis and Wade used stuff that they written here, revisited it in films that came after. Yes, um, interesting. Quite a lot of things that they maybe felt like they hadn't nailed here or they just were running out of ideas. But quite a few things were used in Casino Royale, which I hadn't clocked before. And so I thought that was interesting. These are obviously themes that they're interested in. And so, yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. Do you think that helps retrospectively looking back at Dino the Day then? Do you think you're more forgiving? Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Or or you just see, oh, this torture stuff is really interesting mm. and may you know, maybe a PTSD bond. And you're yeah. thinking, Oh, I wish they'd gone down that route. They were they were they've done the setup and they've not given us the payoff is how it is how it felt watching it this time. 
All right. So when we look at the Bond films, Chris, we generally try and look at them as Bond films. We don't normally look at them in the context of cinema too much. We do a bit, but we, it's it's kind of the focus is as a Bond film. But stepping out of that and looking at it as an early noughties action film, does does this make it a better or worse film? Is it a good noughties action film? Well, again, you know, I feel like it would have been a couple of years before, but the Bourne movie changed everything, really, with the speed and that cinema verite style of shooting and the parkour and the brutality. And so it feels a bit soft to me, I think. And again, as I said, even in 24 on the telly, it was the same, where they were giving us a sort of more brutal style of um, of this character. And so I think the stuff like the... the the car chase on the ice uh, that, that, that Vic Armstrong oversaw, I think that still looks great. And there's fun stuff in terms of, you know, the hovercraft stuff I think is a, is, is a blast to watch and you haven't seen that before. But, yeah, I'm not sure it really holds up in the way that those other films I, I mentioned did and obviously Mission Impossible as well was around that era as well. And I think they hold up a little better than this one. They also, I think they maybe had more money to spend on their CGI and so their CGI might have dated better than this one. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I agree. I think it's 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 tricky when you're going up against because there was a bit of a a new wave of really impressive action stuff that was coming around at that time that was a lot better than or a nice change from the stuff we were seeing in the '90s. Definitely doesn't seem. To, it seems to be trying to catch up with those, but trying to catch up with all of them at the same time when it really it didn't. Need, it just needed to focus on one kind of style. I think. Uh, how do you feel about the concept of something being so bad it's good? Because I, I I tend to disagree with something like that. I think this film is 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 bad but enjoyable. But I don't think it's so bad that that makes it good. No, I agree with you. I think the good stuff is good and the bad stuff is bad. But you know, watching it this week, I feel like the good stuff outweighs the bad. And so, yeah, I, I think I was I was I was pleasantly surprised on this go around. Let's have a let's dive into the film itself then. Um, at the beginning, we've obviously got the um, the pre-title sequence, which I think is one of the stronger pre-title sequences in the Bond series for many, many different reasons. What did, what did you think of it, Chris? Um, I was a bit confused with the very first few moments in terms of it. It doesn't strike me as all that stealthy to arrive in North Korea on top of the waves <laughs> when you can go under the waves. You know, standing on a board six feet high, I feel like you're announcing yourself to the North Koreans rather than, you know, maybe in a swimsuit under the water. So that could, it looked good, but that confused me. I've, I have never seen uh, the news in any sort of war or anything going on anywhere in the world, a picture of the army surfing in to do something. It just, it's never happened. So yeah, I, I've always got an issue with that. I was saying um, to the guys last time that surfing isn't a mode of transport. It's something you do for fun. And, <laughs> It just seems strange that you wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to go very far with it. You could you couldn't surf for like four miles. You can surf for a couple of waves, and that's it. Well, what so it does you, seem like a strange thing. If you find a really big wave, you just ride it all the way in, don't you, for four miles? I'd be interested to see if anybody has ever managed to find a four <laughs> mile long wave that they've taken somewhere. Um, I don't think many people would want to go that far because you've got to get back again. Is, is uh, surfing like essential training at MI six? Do you think is that part of the you know learning how to build a gun and and surfing it's just something they had on the list isn't it they've got that checklist of things to cover in a bond film oh surfing we've not done that let's pop that in this one without really thinking would they ever actually use surfing there's a lot of that in this film 
<laughs> I think it's interesting that they, they chose North Korea. Um, when she was talking about the making of this film, Barbara Broccoli said they always try and think, what's the world worried about now? What will the world be worried about in two years? And how does Bond fit into that world? So I think it's interesting to pick North Korea. You know, not much has changed on that front in how we feel about them and they feel about us. But it also made me laugh that they shot the North Korea scenes in all the shots. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I've got Vic Armstrong's book and he says that when they were on set, uh, he, he looked at pictures of North Korea and he said it looked quite a lot like Aldershot, which, <laughs> which is pretty rude to Aldershot, I think. But um, Or maybe it's rude to North Korea. I don't know. But um, yeah, I thought it was a good set. Yeah, and I think I think it's an absolutely fantastic opening. I think it's the best sequence in the movie. This It promises, I think, a better film than what they deliver. Yeah, agreed. I, I quite like, yeah, I think it's Cornwall and Aldershot that uh, doubles for North Korea here because I know some of the stuff when they land on the beach, it's um, it's Cornwall. But I think something I like about this opening bit is is the way that Bond infiltrates the the deal in that he switches place with the other person. That's quite a classic Fleming conceit, obviously something they did in, in Diamonds Are Forever, the book. And it's very, I, lo- I think it's a great Bond moment where he doesn't just take the guy's briefcase filled with diamonds, but he also takes his sunglasses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of uh, Bond nerds out there who have those sunglasses uh, for that very reason. I quite like Colonel Moon's introduction in the film with the, the, the punch bag. He's <laughs> beating up his anger manager. <laughs> That's a funny conceit, yeah. yeah. It looks good, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's a nice little concept. It's quite, it's quite neat as well. Which it's there's a few elements of this this pre-title sequence that are quite neat and do look quite like they're well thought out, but it, I just wish, wish they'd continued that for the duration of the film. Yeah, I and think... I'm sure you said it on your last episode, but isn't it, this is this is the sequence where Pierce Brosnan injured himself? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was and running so across something. Sh- shut down production for the first time ever. He said on a Bond film because it was him. Yeah. yeah. Interesting that we. It's ha- what's it happened with Daniel Craig a few times, hasn't it? That he's injured himself. I think on, even on No Time to Die, they shut down the production for a short period of time, didn't they? But um, apparently, they couldn't afford to do it on uh, for very long on this one. But um, I, w- one thing I love about this is it introduces hovercrafts, which are an awesome uh, like action vehicle. I think. Yeah, they're underused in Bond films, aren't they? <laughs> He gets a hover. He gets. Is it in Diamonds Are Forever? He uses a hovercraft as a as a ferry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To go to uh, Holland. Wow. There's many links between this film and Diamonds Are Forever. I think. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, apparently very difficult to um, navigate. Also, question whether you could fl- hover, fly a hovercraft over a, a, a minefield. Is that is that like physically possible? I've never heard of anyone testing it. <laughs> Sounds legit. Yeah. I think um, I read somewhere, like in their production notes, they said you can, but they can say just about anything of those things. And I, it's definitely one of those Bond conceits that you're like, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Well, when it comes to this film, it's probably one of the most cohesive um, things said. So um, I'm sticking with that. I'm fine with that. Yeah, that's good. Hovercrafts over landmines. A <laughs> um, big plus for me for, in the opening scene is also the David Arnold score, which I think is quite it's bombastic and it's got i think it's got references to one of majesty's secret service in it which i think is a great great touch um but yeah the, the score overall in this film it's quite um i guess like all of pierce brosnan it's quite high techy isn't it very much of its mo- of its moment is this like the most bombastic pre-title sequence sure tomorrow never dies one was pretty punchy that's right yeah it's got the 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 
hover, what, not hover, it's a jump, the Harrier jump jet, hasn't it? Is that that one? Is it a Harrier jump jet? I just they, remember they, the they'll, music. They'll, I just they'll remember blur the into one, don't they? The Millennium Dome one, that's, uh, well, that's not enough. That's not well yeah. enough, yeah. Tomorrow yeah. Never Dies, he is. He's in the uh, the arms dealer's market, isn't he? Is, it, is yes. it a Harrier jump jet in that? I can't remember. I do like the uh, Saved by the Bell one-liner, where... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah is... and the, mini- the miniatures look great there as well. I think um, it's a spectacular way to, to sort of end end that action sequence. Definitely. I would say, yeah, watch the the behind-the-scenes extras for this bit because it is quite impressive how they've done it. So then we've got, from there, we've got Bond being captured and we go into the title scene, title credits. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> and obviously there's two things to talk about here. Obviously we, we see Bond being tortured and then our ears are tortured <laughs> by the Madonna song. Chris, what do you make of the the theme song? I think it's terrible. And I don't want to sound like an old man, but I'm just not sure if Bond needs or wants to be sort of brought into the present day musically. I think what Bond does has done in the past is what Bond is good at. And I feel like Madonna came along and, you know, Madonna's huge. And I feel like she's said, I don't care what makes a good Bond theme. I'm making this French disco music at the moment. And so that's what I'm going to do, take it or leave it, rather than sort of embracing what Bond is. And so, yeah, it just feels like rubbish daft punk. But maybe that's me being old fashioned. Uh, you know, maybe Bond does need to be in the modern day. But then if you're going to do it, it's got to be a better song, I think. Are there any other Bond ty- uh, like theme musics that you think are not classic and all enough or they're just a bit too modern well i'm saying that I, I i well so what was a modern one was was a view to a kill mm. that sounded incredibly modern but it was a really good tune and i felt like it was in line with what a bond song sh- sort of traditionally has been and yeah. so i think there's ways of doing it i just think i just think she got it wrong because she's madonna <laughs> They did a big deal to get her in the, uh, involved with the film because it was the anniversary. I think they, I think we, when we looked into it, it was like a million dollars they paid for Madonna, the song, and the cameo and the promotion for it. Which, um, and then she spent. A, it, you know, the video, music video for this song, Chris, was the is the third most expensive music video of all time. Can you even remember what it looks like? Where did the money go? <laughs> I don't know. That's mad. And also, I watched all the extras on the disc, or most of them, to prepare for this. She's not in any of them. No. So whatever that bought, she didn't do any any of the any of the promotional stuff behind the scenes or um, yes, which I thought I was quite strange. They didn't even talk about her on you know when they were talking about the casting and everything. No one even mentioned that she was in the film, which was such a big talking point at the time. It was such a big selling point, and then I feel like it was a big criticism as well once it came out and and the, you know the, the scene's a little bit awkward. But um, yeah, it's just it's just a massive misfire. For, for me, anyway. How about you guys? Yeah, um, it's rubbish. Uh, yeah, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Can't stand it. No. And, and it's a shame because it really does ruin what is an interesting take on a, on a, a title sequence. That is, it's such an interesting thing. To, we've never seen anything like it before to this point. I just, I just think with that choice of music, I can't think who would like it because it wasn't cool for young people. Old people wouldn't have liked it. There's mm. no... Yeah. Use that music for it's, it's just, falling into a void, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I was saying, I think I said, I was saying to you guys, I don't once remember that being played in a club or anything like that at the time. It just disappeared. It got it? a lot of airtime on the radio. I seem to remember. 
And so that for that perp, for that goal that they were looking to achieve, I think they uh, they got their money's worth on that front. But um, I think it got was it did we say it got nominated for the Razzies for worst original song? I think. Uh, yeah, and her performance as well. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, did she not win it? No, I don't think she did. No. No. How so. did she not win it for that? <laughs> I, might, I might write into them. So from there, obviously, we get the exchange scene, which I think is, again, it's it's vintage espionage, isn't it? The, 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 the foggy bridge. Again, I think that was filmed on the South Coast somewhere. But um, and then we get, we've got Bond with his long hair, which I think was apparently something that Piers Brosnan specifically demanded that he, uh, he, he has that look. And then obviously we've got... What, for the, for, for the, when he comes out of torture? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what, don't know what they were planning maybe before. Just, maybe, has, no other Bond has had long hair, have they? During an actual Bond film. Maybe he wanted to make history or something. Yeah, and he gets to have that glow up where... You know, mm. he's cleaned himself up and he looks absolutely <laughs> phenomenal. I want to talk Instantly. about that, actually, yeah. Because you see him having this, that moment that we have in the film where he's having the shave. But what that suggests also is that he's cut his own hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and have you ever, have you ever tried to cut your it's own hair? <laughs> he can cut his own hair. Yeah. He looked pretty well, didn't he, for somebody who'd been in a prisoner war camp for a while. You'd expect him to have at least a couple of skin blemishes or something, but no, fine. <laughs> and no and he's done it all with an electric razor. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> That's one hell of a gadget. Yeah, he's not emaciated <laughs> at all, is he? No. <laughs> no, no if, if it was a proper film where they tried to sort of make it realistic, he would he would look pretty bad, I imagine. It mm. would take him at least two months to get back to normal. And But no, well, it's the same as his... With his um, post-traumatic stress disorder, isn't it? It only lasts about two minutes. Yeah, I think the scene with M, I think it's, it's quite nice. I think that's lifted from the from the books as well. But um, I have to say that that moment where he tricks the medical monitoring to believe that his heart has stopped. What? Yeah. That is, well, that's one of the fir- first major unforgivable clangers for me in this film. Well, doesn't he do it by on his own? He's like, he's learnt how to stop his heart. Or something. That's the suggestion, which would make yeah, him... Yeah, he slows his heart rate down so that they think he's dying. But doesn't he slow his heart rate down in Casino Royale as well when he's poisoned? Isn't that something that he does? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Does he slow it down? He does, you're right. Yeah, he does. Maybe it's part of training. Maybe it is. And, and again, this is one of those things that I felt like it was Purvis and Wade re- revisiting this same little thing. But maybe... Oh, then they're doing it on purpose. This is a skill that he has. And mm. so we can use this. Don't use it too often, lads. <laughs> but they used it back to back. <laughs> I, th- I think, yeah, I think it's I think it's quite a fun moment. I found it very creepy when he thanks that woman for the kiss of life, though. Mm. Yeah. You know, she's, thank- yeah. she's trying to save his life. There's, there's nothing sexual about what she's doing. And yet mm. he, he makes it sexual. And then she seems excited by it. And it's like, oh, come on, James. Yeah, it's a odd odd moment. We've got um, obviously the bot Bond is then in Hong Kong, and he goes to that hotel where everyone seems to be a secret agent <laughs> that's working there. <laughs> uh, but that's just... one of my favourite moments. But walk, you know, walking in wet and dishevelled, and then demanding his usual suite. That's a very cool Bond moment, I think. You know, with everyone looking at looking at him shocked, and then you know ordering his tailor and his lobster and his Bollinger and his masseuse. <laughs> it's very cool have you ever done that uh, arrived at a hotel and just demanded your favourite suite 
No, but I have arrived at a hotel looking dishevelled. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much par for the course. It, obviously, the masseuse is Peaceful Fountains of Desire. Is that is that a normal name? Is that what people are called? <laughs> Named after a father, perhaps? Who, who are you asking? I'm just a, yeah. <laughs> rhetorically asking. The, the expert from the group. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't know, Tom. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a strange moment. Yeah, so... Then we go to Cuba. Mm. Thoughts, on, so thoughts I, on Cuba as a setting? Well, amazing. I, and I went to Cuba about five years ago and I was really shocked when I watched the behind the scenes and realised they didn't shoot in Cuba. I was impressed. I was fooled. So obviously they, they shot in Cadiz in Spain and um, it apparently rained pretty much all the time they were there <laughs> and you would not know. That was I was, I was pretty convinced, um, especially as I guess... Since this film was made, there are film companies in Cuba now. I think we've had a Fast and Furious there. We've had a Transformers shot there. And there is big, awesome stuff there that those films got that this obviously didn't. But I think I think they captured I think they captured the essence of, of, of Havana pretty well. But I didn't think he looked all that cool. I thought he looked like he'd been dressed by Gap. <laughs> yeah. I, I always think he looks like a he's a dad in it. Yeah. He's got yeah. a dad shirt on. Yeah. The way that shirt is buttoned sort of up to his belly button almost just above it and then he feels like he's got a white vest on underneath it doesn't quite mm. work for a, a guy mm. in his mid-50s that's no. Brioni isn't it Butler that's an actually proper design shirt for him yeah that's a Brioni shirt we uh, we looked at that but, um, yeah that that Fast and Furious film that it that's on along that strip isn't it which which that looks like in Die Another Day isn't it exactly and that's what fooled me that's what I was, oh yeah I've, I've walked along there huh? when I saw it in the film and I was like, oh, it's nice to see that place again. So the the, the location uh, scout did his job on this one, I think. Um, yeah, and obviously here in Cuba was where we get introduced to Jinx. We've talked. What I can't remember. What what did we say about Jinx, Brendan? You you, you liked. Her. You didn't mind her, did you? No, you I, liked I, I I liked her. I liked her as a as a character, but I just I don't like her. I didn't think they used her particularly well, which is the theme of this movie, isn't it? You know, you've got some somebody like. Halle Berry and Waster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they, it feels like they're setting her up to that, that she's a female Bond, mm. in that her relationships don't seem to last, and you know she's mm. she's got all these similar attributes to him. But it feels like we don't really get enough of who she is or what she's all about. And and um, I don't know if she's bad in this film or not because her dialogue. She's she's almost given every line is terrible. She's given to say, yeah. so she yeah. comes across badly. But it might it might not be her fault. Yeah, um, that's why I'm willing to forgive her because her dialogue is dreadful. She's she's not given anything decent to sort of play with, uh, and therefore uh, her character and Brosnan's character don't build any rapport because it's just like they're quip 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 back and forth. It's like they're not building anything here. Yeah. And she does do weird things like it's quite a graphic sex scene they have, I think. But then she's mm. eating during it, like yeah. Why is she eating? Yeah, it's... she almost killed herself as well doing that. <laughs> it's Pierce Brosnan had to save her. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. I feel like James Bond would be better in bed that the person he's with wouldn't want a snack. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's just been in a prisoner walkout for six months. Okay, he's probably enough. a little bit rusty. Fair enough. We also in Havana. He, I didn't double check this, but I, I just. Phil, I remember this. You guys will know. He picks up that field guide to birds. Yeah, and yeah. isn't that yeah. where Fleming got the name James Bond from? Mm-hmm. 
That's so that, right. Yeah. That book was written by a bloke called James Bond, and Fleming was looking for a boring name, and he thought the mm-hmm. most boring name was the guy who would write this bird watching book. And of course, it's now considered the coolest name. It's so strange how these things work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of those sort of callbacks to Bond legacy in this film. Mm. That's the most obvious one for the for the Bond fans. For the geeks, I'm not sure. Really sure it needed it. Is it, I, I don't mind that one because it's quite subtle. It's mm. when they put the really stupid ones in later when I, I'm not a fan of them. Yeah. Agreed, but, but it gives Paige the uh, the line ornithologist. That's quite a mouthful, hmm. <laughs> which is part of the scene, which for me is one of the worst <laughs> scenes in the whole film, and it's just a dialogue I've, scene. I've wiped that from memory. I completely forgot that was in it. Well, that's where the whole feasting after dark thing comes from. Oh. It's, it's such. But I guess a... this this must be one of the few times where, because obviously Halle Berry had done the X Men movies but she won her Oscar while they were shooting this film. And yeah. so this is one of the few times that when this came out, she was a bigger star than Bond, which hasn't happened very often, I don't think, with the, the Bond girl sort of being more in the public eye than the actor or even, mm-hmm. even the part. That's probably why they changed those posters. I didn't realise that that coincided, but she got equal billing on the posters, didn't she, with um, Piers for this one? Wow, and she's not in um, it. She's not in it that much. No, um, not at all. Yeah, and the posters yeah, trade very heavily. As much as Rosamund Pike. Sorry, Tom. No, no, I was just saying the posters trade very heavily on it being a two, two-hander, uh, the mm, film. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thinking about after it from the Craig era, I mean, there hasn't been as big a name in them. I guess Monica Bellucci was big, but only through... Mm. She wasn't. She's not like an A-lister, is she? So, yeah, it was an interesting um, decision there. And I think it would maybe like, you know, they felt like they had to up the ante. Um, one, one, thing I, one more thing I want to say about Cuba. I always... Every time I watch this, I'm like, why? Why are we in Cuba? It just feels like it's crowbarred in. Yeah. It, it, I've never watched... Uh, in other Bond films, you just sort of... You kind of accept it with the story when they go, oh, he's going there because he's been sent and there's there's a lead there. This, even though there is a lead, it doesn't feel justified. It feels just out of place. Mm. Um, well, they go there because it's their location of the gene replacement therapy yeah. centre. But that that feels weird. Yeah, because even the island that the gene therapy replacement centre on is a fictional island, so they could have put it anywhere. I guess it's just one of those times where it's just like, where haven't we been in the world with James Bond, Mm -hmm. Cuba? But equally, where haven't we been in the world, but actually we can't actually go there? (laughs) So where can we make Cadiz in Spain look like? Spain Spain would have been fine. Yeah, yeah, Cadiz, yeah. Yeah, that might have saved them a bit of hassle. Oh, yeah, one more thing just about Jinx is obviously... Jinx also brings along with her Falco, played by Michael Madsen, which mm. always surprises me. Did you remember that Michael Madsen was in this Chris before you watched it? <laughs> no, no, not a clue. Not a clue that he's in this film. I mean, he's barely in it, isn't he? If Again, it feels like they might be setting up something interesting between, you know, the UK and the US, but it never really goes anywhere. It just feels like something that ended up on the cutting room floor. And and you got a sense watching the behind the scenes that that the writers were working on this script as they were making the film. You know, it wasn't ready. It was not ready when they started shooting it. And so it feels like there's a lot of stuff with his character and Jinx that that maybe was in there initially that got cut out because it's completely underdeveloped that storyline. I think I remember reading pages from the Jinx spin-off film as well, which leaked a few years ago. And I think Falco played a bigger part in that. Right. So I wonder whether that was sort of a, a prop for if they did spin her 
character off into a film it's another recognizable name to build her her like secret service family around as well but i just think he's very unlikable (laughs) in this film Mm. but yeah i guess from from cuba we return to london and it gives us one of the film's most annoying moments brendan (laughs) please address this (laughs) london calling oh (laughs) wow what's that about it's got. It should be illegal. It should be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I think the last I time know, I saw. How, how did that get past like Barbara and Michael G. Wilson? Because yeah. they're normally on it when they see something ridiculous that comes in that just doesn't work with it. But it's... no, let's put that perfect, lovely. We don't mind that at all. God. Haven't learned anything from Roger Moore's uh, Beach Boys song. The only reason I can think is because the British Airways were using this as their advert song, that it was contractual. Surely, surely it's that. Because yeah. why else would you put it in there? Ah, oh, We yeah, know you're in London. Sense. You don't have to put a song on it. Yeah, it's a British Airways plane as well, isn't it? Very clearly. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just But awful. it's so jarring, isn't it? Yeah. They did a huge deal with British Airways in that you know um, the, the character of, of what you call Gus, Gustav, yeah, um, is on the front cover of High Life magazine. He was actually that was actually the cover of High Life that month on British Airways planes. It was all synergy. Wow. Uh, wow. Well, Gustav Graves then. Graves. <laughs> Are you going to try and get hold of this High Life magazine, Butler? It's the kind of thing that you spend your time. <laughs> do you know? Trying to sort. Funnily enough, the only time I've ever picked up a, a High Life magazine is. Do you remember? You probably won't remember this, but there was a time when Benedict Cumberbatch was on the cover. And British Airways had to appeal to its customers to stop taking them off the plane. And it was the most stolen copy of High Life magazine was the one with Benedict Cumberbatch on the cover. And somehow I ended up with a copy on my desk. Because they couldn't get it off, get him on any other magazine. It was a great cover. And I still th- I actually think I only just recently got rid of it and threw it away. But yeah. Well, so you're one of the people that <laughs> stole it. No, because it was in such short, because <laughs> it was in such short demand. I don't know why we were talking about, it, but someone had been on a on a plane, and it'd been something we'd been talking about. And someone in the office gave, came back and gave it to me. So, I'm right. guessing it was Sherlock, wasn't it? Was it Sherlock? Probably. Yeah, yeah. It was the time when he was just massive. But yeah, Gustav Graves he, uh, modelled himself on James Bond. Uh, take- well, I was just going to say he give. I think he gets a great entrance. You know, the parachute outside um, Buckingham Palace. But then he's given all these really stupid, annoying things to say. But maybe that makes more sense at the end of the film when you realise he's modelled himself on Bond. He's trying to sound like Bond or how he perceives Bond to sound. Maybe I can forgive him because he just sounds like a Wally. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good theory. If he's trying to be a caricature, then that, that yes. I, we... I can't forgive it with that. I, I don't think that's a good enough excuse. He is just a Wally. He's, <laughs> can't forgive him for being a Wally. I have to say that the um, the introduction when he lands and there's the press comp, there's like the assembled press, and they ask him the questions. It's just so, it's just so on the nose, isn't it? They're like questions you yeah. wouldn't ask in person. Is it true you don't sleep? It's like <laughs> what? And I always, you know, have you done the job a little bit? Like it always, it's always a bit cringeworthy when an actor tries to be a journalist. It just never quite rings true. They always seem like they're being the like tabloid journalist from the sun that the spitting image used to take the mick out of, you know? I'm never quite convinced by them. Although, I, you know, I guess we couldn't do a better job of it. But um, no. yeah. N- next, n- next time you're on a red carpet, you two, can you throw out some of those random <laughs> questions that they ask and just see if you get a response? 
That would be funny at the No Time to Die red carpet to ask just those questions. (laughs) (laughs) That was a challenge accepted, yeah. But I do think from there, obviously we get Gustav Graves and we get Rosamund Pike's character, Miranda Frost. We then go to Blades, which for me is the highlight of this film. That whole sort of jousting sequence, apart from Madonna. I think that's I think that's great. I think it's sort of a, a Goldfinger type throwback. Yeah, and I I found myself I was annoyed at first because they had their masks on and I thought well these are clearly stunt men and they fooled me because then they took the masks off and it got so much better. It was brilliant seeing them do it for real. It looked it looked it looked properly scary <laughs> what they were doing. What was it? What was it you were saying, Butler? That um, what's his face? Toby Stevens like had proper training. He was really good at it, and yeah. uh, Bro- Brosnan didn't really bother training, and he was just good at it naturally when he turned. <laughs> well, it was the last scene they filmed because of Brosnan's injury. They pushed it right back to the end of filming, so Toby Stevens spent the whole shoot practicing his fencing and his swordplay. But Brosnan only had like a few days to to do it, and Toby Stevens says that Brosnan just like yeah was a complete natural and absolutely like did it all for real with like just a few lessons. So uh, I think he was quite, uh, quite jealous of him, but um, I, I love this scene. I think it's fantastic. It's a great setting. Uh, it's a very bond esque sort of, you know, private members sword fighting club. I love it. And then obviously it ends with the immortal invite to Iceland to see my satellite launching. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, just uh, yeah. Couldn't happen anywhere else in the world. Could it? So, yeah, I guess from there, we go to Q's lab. Now, I've been quite vocal before in how much I dislike John Cleese as Q. What do you make of him, Chris, as Q? Yes, I remember liking him more than this. Um, I did not enjoy his performance here because he's a very funny man and I didn't find him funny at all. Again, it might be in the um, in the in the lines he's given to say, but it does feel a bit broad. And I guess they're trying to do something different with the character, but I found it a little bit cringy. And I, I think, were you going to say, Tom, about are these some of the moments, some of these callbacks that you found annoying to 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 all the all the previous yeah, films? Th- th- most of them are in this, mm. um, but I, I I think that with I think they messed up John Cleese's um, Q character when they did World Is Not Enough, and they made him a joke in it, mm. and then expected him to come back in this one and play it almost like Q. So essentially he's becoming the new Q in this one, but in the last one, Q's just making fun of him as a sort of useless assistant. So already they've set him up badly and it just doesn't work anymore. They should have brought him in as a sort of smart, but humorous new Q character instead of like messing it up. Um, but yeah, this scene for me, the, the, the callbacks to those elements, they just seem like, why has he kept them all in this room? What's he doing with them? They're, as Brendan always says, why why has he got Rosie Klebb's shoe? When did they pick that up? <laughs> it's like it's like a James Bond film museum room. It's not like an actual room that you store stuff that's going to be useful at some point. Yeah, there's props from all the films in there, or, or at least from, from from many of them. But it would be weird if that was his lab, having all the old stuff there rather than working on the mm. new stuff. Um, yeah, because Q's not done that in the past. Now suddenly he's, he's hoarding all this stuff. Well, you know, on a Majesty's Secret Service, uh, remember when Lazenby is emptying his desk, he does he has some of the old gadgets as well. So the the, the series has like precedence for doing it. But um... yeah, but that, 
when Lazenby was pulling out the old gadgets, they were still like recently the same decade. Gadgets. They were still yeah. five or six yeah. years recently. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's are they going to like? Bond decides to take out Cleb's shoe and use it for one of his. Um, not even his size. It's not even his size. Is it? <laughs> it's a useless room full of, of stuff. And it's it's not like that to them in in that world. Those things aren't really amazing stuff to keep and like look at. They're just part of the job. It's not like a film thing that they want to keep for posterity. Maybe the jetpack, but even then, no, it's still they'd modernise the jetpack, surely, in 30 years. Well, that's surprising, isn't it, that he's still not got a jetpack <laughs> since then, but he has got one in a room from 1965, 30 yeah. years ago. But actually, before that, there is the bit where Bond's doing his virtual reality training as well. Oh, dear. Which uh, obviously has a callback later on. But that idea of the virtual reality training that's revealed to be not real, was at the time, was that old hat or is it just old hat here as well? <laughs> because I feel like I've seen that scene a thousand times. What, that was virtual reality was, the concept was old hat? Yeah, well, no, just the idea that they're in a, in a simulated environment. Surely that's something... I, I think it got... To, virtual reality had been around for a long time until this point, but it would massively... Like crap. So people stopped using it in films because it wasn't. People knew that it wasn't as good as people like it could be. So at this point, virtual reality. Like you look at this and think, oh that, oh yeah, virtual reality is not like that. It's like the crystal maze or something like that, where it's just crap. So yeah, I just don't think it. Well, I think people knew by this point that it wasn't like that. <laughs> that you did have a promise of it being like that. I think what I don't like about this scene is what it does to the audience. Just showing them something and going, nope, that's not what's happening. With Bond doesn't do that really. Bond's not done that before in that way, and the fact that it does it twice for me is um, unforgivable. Yeah, you, you. I think you're allowed to do it once. Although I agree for you, with you, I wouldn't do it in a Bond film. But then mm. it's 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 just it's just a, like a filmmaking rule that you don't fo- try and fool the audience twice with the same gag. Mm. I also wonder if as well. You know, shooting this whenever it was two thousand and one, two thousand. They um, it felt like every film had to have a little bit of bullet time from the Matrix in it, and right. so this was their opportunity to stick five seconds of bullet time in a film to make yes. you know because that was cool at that time. But yeah. it, that also dates it quite badly as well, I think. Mm. Yeah, I'd never thought of that. That's uh, yeah, great point. Um... I do always think as well Bond's offices here because I think it's one of the first times we see Bond's office, um, apart from when we saw it in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It looks so boring, <laughs> like it's not very visually interesting, is it? Any any of the MI6 offices in this one. So yeah, so then we've got um, the invisible car. Obviously, it comes in at this point on the um, the tube station. We've discussed that a little bit um, already. Okay, concept. How does he get it to Iceland? I always wonder. Because that's where he goes to next. Does he take it in a freight or? A lot of effort. Yeah. Although they do, Goldfinger does move his car, doesn't he? By plane, so it's not too bad. That's true. But he's using it to smuggle gold, isn't he? I just like the idea of Bond driving it to the ferry and... Uh... It's, well, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. If he was putting the effort in to move that thing all the way over there, he needn't have bothered. Because it's not that useful. He could have got he could have got through most of the stuff that he did in that whole sort of a sequence without having the car being invisible. Doesn't it just break at one point anyway? It can no longer it's no longer invisible. I just hate that bit where he's creeping up on those two blokes, the the soldiers, and he's in the car driving behind them and it's invisible. But it's 
quiet, so they'd they would have heard the snow crunching under a car behind them, but they didn't notice it. It was fine. And then he just gets out of the car. He only goes about ten meters. Sorry, that annoys me. That scene every time. That's a good point. Obviously, before we go to Iceland, we've got Miranda Frost being revealed to be uh, a double agent, or at least uh, undercover with Gustav Graves. Which I think is a neat little moment, but it, I feel like it does give away the point that she's the undercover double agent straight away, a bit too early, maybe. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I, did you talk about Gala Brand at all when you did the behind the scenes stuff? Yes, yes, so, because I think so that, that was, was a mis- real surprise to me um, yeah. that, that she was originally supposed to be uh, that character from the Moonraker novel. He's obviously the only sort of female lead that hasn't been in a movie yet from those books. I don't know. Have you read that? Have you read that novel? And and is she sufficiently different? I thought that would have been a fun, you know, nod to to Fleming if because she was an undercover agent in, in yeah. Drax, and so the setup's the same, I guess. So I'm, I'm I'm I couldn't figure out why they changed that. No, I guess the difference is is this, is that Gala Brand is is always loyal to MI6, whereas right. um, Frostus has been turned. Although Frost's background. Brendan, we've talked about this before, is so convoluted in her becoming this double agent. So she was an Olympic fencer who who then won, was it one gold because Gustav Graves had poisoned the other side and she'd yeah. left. So she was already, already working with Gustav Graves. Then she joins MI6 and is a sleep agent. Who obviously agent. didn't do a background check. Obviously not, no. <laughs> and then yeah. she becomes embedded as a PR manager for Gustav Graves. Yeah. <laughs> um, who, who is a guy who's turned into a billionaire in 14 months. Uh, yeah, the, he, uh, yeah, he turned himself into a billionaire in 14 months. We got a knighthood in the process. Yeah. She's been on quite a journey with him. Um, yeah. I, I, that's the thing I didn't really buy into. They're friends at uni at Harvard. And then he... he convinces her to betray her country in exchange for I think she got silver and the other woman got gold but then um he made the woman have a OD on steroids and so she it. was bumped up to a gold yeah and by doing that that's that's why she you know puts everything on the line for it just doesn't it just doesn't ring true it just all sounds ridiculous and as you say I hadn't really thought about the fact that then it's somewhat coincidental that she ends up embedded with him it's relying on way too much coincidence and just there's not enough meat on it really it's just yeah it's a shame because she's she's an interesting character but it's yeah ridiculous so well talking of ridiculous this is where things really start to go off the cliff when when the film moves to iceland i think we've talked about this before it's a film of two halves it's like the build-up to iceland and then everything from iceland onwards where and even the introduction that we get to the Iceland location and, and the ice palace, it's just everything comes to a head. It's got that horrific slow-mo. It's got like that juddering like zooms. It's just horrific. I mean, and, and such a shame because that ice palace set is amazing. But yeah, this is where things, I think, go begin to unravel for the film really, really badly and really rapidly. Yeah, it's a mess. Yeah. There, I actually... I've only watched this film about three weeks ago. No, it was about a month ago I watched it. And I'm struggling to remember what happens in that whole bit of the film. I, that It's the laser sequence that gets me every time. <laughs> Where they, with what's, his, what's the name of the bad? The Mr. Kill. Henchman. Mr. Kill. Kill. Mr. Kill and the stupid lasers that 
like everywhere and he's dodging these lasers. That's the that's that that's basically a the film, the whole film for me is like that. Just lasers shooting everywhere for no reason. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the other big clangers is it, it just seems to be like, oh, how do we just add another layer of ridiculousness onto this onto this yeah. film? So you've got, yeah, the idea that he never sleeps, which again has yeah. has no relevance other than he has his... That, uh, I mean, that, if, if you had a character that didn't sleep, you tie that better into the the storyline and it would be quite an important plot point would it not just oh oh, also he doesn't sleep yeah <laughs> and he's got these gloves that shoot electricity what else has he got uh loads of other stuff don't you worry there's a list coming well it, don't forget he's got a satellite in space that can uh, yeah, that can reflect yeah. the power of the sun at his own whim he's just uh, sp- uh, rides a sp- speed car over the ice that's right he's setting land speed records over the ice with his rocket car <laughs> but just pick one or two he's, don't tr- he's trying everything. to get on the olympic fencing team yeah um, <laughs> yeah yeah you're you're absolutely right tom like it's it, it, you, this is the issue isn't it it's, it's it's all disparate elements none of it is sort of you want it to be all connected and it just feels like it's everything's a bit random in terms of mm-hmm. his powers and what he's after and so yeah, it's just it just gets messier and messier. And also, it might he's... have been an all right film if they'd just gone back and gone right. Let's just take out forty two of these elements and leave in five, <laughs> and it might be okay because they, nothing gets the attention it, de- it deserves. Not that some of the stuff need, deserves any attention, but even like, even something like Jinx, just spend less time on the lasers and st- stupid gloves and put a bit more time on Jinx. Give her a little bit more storyline. But yeah, it's. Um, yeah, I, I struggle with the too many too many things going on. Yeah, because when you think about someone like Goldfinger, I know we always talk about Goldfinger, but he, it says it all in the song, he loves only gold, and that's his modus <laughs> operandi, isn't it? He yeah. smuggles gold, he wants gold, he uses gold for yeah. power, his plot... Likes fencing, likes racing sports cars, <laughs> likes <laughs> ice. And he's got one really good henchman, right, who has, like, you know, superhuman strength, whereas Gustav Graves has Zhao, who's got diamonds in his face, and then mm. he's got Vlad, the weird scientist, who just is, like, hanging around yeah. him all the time. And then he's got Miranda Frost. It's just so convoluted. Mr. Um, Kill. Mr. Kill. And Mr. Kill, yeah, don't forget Mr. Kill. The name for... Mr. Kill is the most pointless henchman of all time, because he's basically an add-on to the existing henchman, but doesn't Mr. Kill doesn't do anything. He's got the name Mr. Kill. Presumably because he once killed someone, but he hasn't got any sort of skills, has he? It's not like he's got a, an extra arm or it, something. It's, it's spelt with one L, so I think it's probably his birth name. Oh, that's oh, I see. But he mm. does kill, or he might. <laughs> Wait, he, he does get killed, doesn't he? He gets killed. Yeah, I guess his yeah, arm sliced off with a laser. Of course he does. They're everywhere in that room. <laughs> I'm not surprised they even dodged the lasers. But do you think he would always have grown up to be a killer, or do you think once he had the name <laughs> Kill, it kind of he thought, well, I may as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's got a bit. What else is going to Likes clearly likes ice. She's gravitated towards an ice palace. Yeah, I've only just know. I've only just realised that her name was Miranda Frost, and it's a lot about ice. Yeah, Which I think is tacky as well. <laughs> it's the gift that keeps on giving. I'd I'd have got to that point where you've like she's in the film, you've got the script, and you've got a character called Miranda Frost. Maybe ten minutes into doing the ice scenes, I would have gone, oh, should we rename this character? To not be Miranda Frost, because that's a bit weird. No, keep it in. Keep it in. I've got another character for you, Mr. Kill. Just really obvious links. I'm, I'm glad that they never go to the moon. 
<laughs> I wouldn't have been surprised in this film. Obviously, in that laser cutting scene, you've got that joke from Halle Berry's Jinx. Your your mama, she's she gives this whole new. Well, that's the joke. worst bit for me. That's the worst bit of the whole film for me. <laughs> Who sent that, you that's... your mama? And she told me to tell you she's very disappointed that's in it. you. That's what? It. <laughs> what? <laughs> your mama. <sighs> but it's just it's, it's just a string of. It's not that that on its own is bad. It's like. They've done that one, and then she does the stupid line with the um, book when she puts it into her chest. I can't mm. even remember what it is. What's the, what's the line on that one? Not War and Peace. No. I can't remember what it is. She says, read this, bitch. That's it. Excuse my language. Excuse my language. It's relentless. It's just relentless one-liners. Like, and- they've, they've gone through it and gone, we need to cut this down. Well, say, well, should we cut down some of these one-liners? No. Take out anything that is useful and just leave the one-liners. And she said, it, I broke her heart, didn't she? After stabbing her through the heart, oh, yes. which again no is reason. just has no meaning. Oh, yeah. Obviously, at this point, we've got the the reveal that uh, Miranda Frost and Colonel Moon. Uh, first of all, Miranda Frost is working for Gustav Graves and that Gustav Graves is not who he says he is. I actually remember this sequence when watching it the first time when we were younger. And I got really confused at the time between Colonel Moon, Zhang and who each of those was in the process. Now I get it because I've been putting more attention to it, but I think that's too messy as well, having those two characters that have had some issues with surgery and all this sort of stuff. It's just an unnecessary number of characters in it. Yeah, I think Colonel Moon in, in himself is a good character. Gustav Graves is a good character, but I think the fact that they're both the same person is just it's, it's, it's too much. Does, you, does you, Zhao do anything? I can't remember him doing anything I f- useful. I feel like you never feel like Moon and Gustav Graves are the same person. Yeah. Which is a massive problem with mm-hmm. with your movie because the, the whole narrative relies on us buying into that. One thing I thought, though, watching it was when it's revealed to us that uh, Moon is, is, is Graves, is the moment that he's reunited with Zhao. And I felt like there was this real connection between them, it, almost like there was something more than friendship between those two characters. <laughs> And again, Ooh, no, yes. I, I absolutely feel like no, they they that's they were hinting at that in that moment. And again, but it's something that doesn't really get explored again. And I guess they went to do that in in later Bond films. But um, I, uh, I, I'm glad they didn't try and put that element of the story. Focus on that as well. Crikey, that's interesting. I've never noticed that before. But yeah, you're right. There is a very much mm. a, a sort of a, a connection that goes beyond. Yeah, when they embrace, it's it feels like it's more than just a, a, an embrace of friendship. Which, yeah, I think, again, that would have been maybe more interesting to explore that than what we got. And, and, you know, they do interesting stuff with the villains, you know, later later on in the series. So I'd have, I'd have swapped that out for the invisible car and the um, falling off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I did like that bit where um, Bond uses the ring to smash the floor there. I think that's quite a cool Bond type moment. It's almost forgotten at that point that he's got that ring, that gadget ring. Of course you have. You've had so much else to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah obviously from there then we've got the car chase which is like it's again it's a scene of two halves it it starts off i think great and ends up being one of the worst things that's ever been committed to film yeah watching those behind the scenes it looked terrifying them shooting the the chase scene in terms of you know vic armstrong was saying when the cars would go by you could feel it felt like you were standing on a trampoline the ice would go up and down and and you you see the you know the safety talks they're getting and i mean that was a must be one of the most dangerous stunts or, or chases they've ever done in a Bond film, and I think I think it pays off. Yes, you, you even see one of the stuntmen smash into a um 
into, into an iceberg with an, and total one of the cars because they weren't wearing seatbelts because they didn't think they would need to. <laughs> I, no, I think they're not wearing seatbelts because if they were to go through the water, it, through the ice into the water, they wouldn't have to undo their seatbelts. I remember right. reading this. Yeah, yeah. They said that that yeah. was one of the safety features that they did was... Um, but yeah, I think it works. It, it, it's obviously just then really jarring that we go from this really cool visual scene into the the cgi madness that happens shall i give you my vic armstrong quote about the cgi please do so this is from his autobiography he says that was absolute garbage appalling cgi nonsense but then he makes a good point he says i think if you lose the trust of your audience then you're screwed i'm a great believer in cgi and i think there's a place for it in the stunt business but used correctly Everybody keeps saying to me, why did you do that bit with the wave? And I say, it was nothing to do with me. It was the director. So, yeah, throwing his boss under the, under the car there. But, and he never came um, back to do another Bond film after. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't think... It, it, the feeling I got watching it the first time is the film struggles to recover from, from that moment. Just because you're taken out of it and, and you're so used to not thinking that when you're watching Bond. It's, it's really mm. quite upsetting. Yeah. On like an existential level. I think we discussed in our, in our main episode that we've already seen actual surfing. For real. Yeah. So why can't now, Bond do it? Yeah. And now you're showing it and it looks so different. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, and it obviously then leads to the most, probably one of the most forgettable finales of a James Bond film ever. I, every time I watch it, I just think, I can't remember what happens in this bit. Just what... I completely agree. I completely switched off when I was watching it uh, and, and I just didn't care. It felt like it felt like we'd had the climax and it was just an additional scene where, you know, I didn't care what was going on in that plane or it's just. Mm. I hate the bit with, um, I, I think it feels like it's the ending of the film. It's the bit where he sort of saves Jinx yep. um, from the ice palace. Yep. Mm. And that should be the ending of the film for me. And, but what I feel about that is that he barely knows her and suddenly it's like, oh, I'm here for you. And she's like, oh my God, I've been waiting for you all this time. He's like, hold on. You've only met yeah. like twice <laughs> in Cuba. And that's it. And then suddenly she's, there's like this big, it, it's just like they've missed out so many points to that, to that story. They should have just deleted that ending or the other ending. Don't, don't keep them both in there. Yeah, and interesting when we looked into it as well, this ending was, um, was, it was changed. It was originally going to be this indoor beach sequence that was set in japan but um yeah we've got instead we've got this uh doomed plane coming down to crash which obviously in in in, in wake of 9-11 was probably a bit bad taste at the time i didn't know that because it's out of nowhere he says the villain says japan is a bug waiting to be squashed <laughs> and so is, is that the plan like it's just you just get so much information while they're on this plane in terms of being reunited with his dad, he's blowing stuff up, he's clearing a minefield, he's creating a highway for uh, the Korean troops, and then if the Americans don't run, Icarus will destroy them, and he kills his dad and he takes his Medal of Honor, and then suddenly Miranda's in a bra fighting Jinx. <laughs> don't forget, he's in his robot suit as well. <laughs> he's well, He's got a Nintendo Power oh, yeah, yeah. Glove on. <laughs> yeah. Someone's got the art of war. You but... could do a whole film on that Power Glove. That, that's like this, that's like one thing that you could cover for at least an hour. And they've just thrown it in like, oh, we've got this Power Glove. Come on, get that. Bring those in, all that. It's like they had a limited budget that they had to use up. And, and just reading around it, in, the, in those couple of scenes, it sounds like they managed to, in those couple of lines of dialogue that Gustav gets, he, he managed, they managed to upset both the North Koreans and the South Koreans. So, but all of them boycotted this movie. 
uh, and uh, yeah, they were lucky. The Korean Ministry called it the wrong film at the wrong time, but yeah, they <laughs> so managed to. I, st- I still call it that. <laughs> so you're saying this this film basically united Korea. <laughs> <laughs> Silver linings. (laughs) So, yeah, the North Korean government disliked the portrayal of their state as brutal and war hungry. Okay, fine. And then the South Koreans were upset, apparently, because it looked like the the American officers, officer issues orders to to the Korean army in defense of their homeland. And they also got upset that there was a sex scene um, near a statue of Buddha, which was offensive. So, yeah. You, uh, yeah, Brendan, they, he did it. Bond United Korea. Wow. For a few, for a few precious moments. <laughs> that sex scene must be the one that happens at the, is it the very end of the film when they're in yes. that? Yeah, the, the helicopter. Right. No, because they, they've crashed, don't they? And they have that whole horrible exchange with the diamond and he's saying, oh, and she's oh. saying, oh, don't take it out. It doesn't, and he's saying, oh, but it fits perfectly. And oh, <laughs> it's such a weird way to end the film. Yeah, it's been quite a weird film, but that is one of the weirdest moments that we're focusing on a, a belly button diamond. I, by that point, I'm so exhausted, and <laughs> I just can't, I can take anything. Like it's it could, like, like Teletubbies could have been there. I just gone, yeah, yeah, let's get over with. But I, I just did on, on my show Clash of the Titles. We just did Air Force One, and the way uh, they bump off Gary Oldman is that is really similar to the way they they bump off the 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 villain here, which was only a couple of years before. So that sounds strange considering. They're basically being made for exactly the same audience. Air Force One was made before this. Yes. Right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So sticks the parachute on him and sort of opens it and chucks him out of the plane. So the bit that gets me on that plane bit is you know where he has that weird thing with his dad. At no point have you thought about his dad and that relationship in this whole the whole film from the start. And then he kills him, and then they do that slow mo thing, like it's the most poignant part of the film, and it's everything's been leading to this him killing his dad, but it doesn't mean anything. He just falls to the ground. Like, okay, okay, is that it? Yeah. What's going on there? And and then you immediately when when Bond then kills the villain, he, his line is "Time to face gravity." Again, oh yeah, because it's not gravity. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's a jet engine, and it wouldn't have been hard <laughs> to set a line up to pay it off. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of direction yeah. they could have gone in, with, with yeah. either a joke or something that was between them earlier in the film. So it, that just feels a bit lazy to me. Yeah, they gave up, didn't they? I have to say that Toby Stevens does give give this film his everything. I think too much. But, uh, yeah, some might say too much. He is chewing. Yeah, and that line, <laughs> "Watch the rising of your sun," I think is uh, is an all timer. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but but I you know I, I a lot of times I feel like a Bond film lives or dies on the on the strength of its villain, and he's although he's you know he's similar to Bond he just doesn't seem frightening at any point or there's 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 nothing to really latch onto in terms of you never really feel like Brosnan's Bond is in danger from what feels just like a petulant child. I just think he's just too confusing all the way through like you don't really know who he is for the most most part of the film and you don't really it's not like you're even trying to work out that he's colonel moon or anyone you don't care you just don't know who this man is and it all the way until the end he still is it's like his character changes throughout as well like the way he speaks and what he's trying to do so it's a very it's not a very static thing you can't form this sort of rapport with the villain or find any fear in him because you haven't got a clue who he is. No, it's because the way they introduced him, that, that press conference after he gets off the parachute, it's just they're on the back foot because they've they've just revealed everything. 
But there's no intrigue. You're not like, oh, who is this? Who's this guy? He's he's been asked the questions. He's answered them. That's it. You know who he is. So yes, favorites, favorite, favorite scenes. Anyone got anything they want to say? Favorites. Yeah. <laughs> Oof, no, I'm out. You're out. Tapping out. <laughs> what, what about you, I love Chris? The, I, I love the opening sequence. I think it's great. I think it really works. Um, yeah, I think the best stuff yeah. is, the, is the first sort of 10, 15 minutes of this movie. Yeah. You... Until, until until Madonna sings her first line. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a cracking bomb film. Brendan, are you the same? Uh, opening scene, car chase. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, have you Butler? Have you got a favourite scene? No, I mean I've mentioned it already, but Blades. I love the stuff at Blades. I think that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think yeah. it's a it's a it's a vintage. Could have come from any Bond film. I think. I think that's that's the key, isn't it? With a with a great Bond moment. If you can imagine any of the Bonds doing it, then 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 you're onto a winner there. But if it's obviously very specific to one, then it's not right. But I think that's that's probably that's probably it. And then as I've probably said before, is is that fit the the scene where Jinx is introduced and that that dialogue there? I think it's. Uh, it's horrific. Um, that would be my worst if I had to choose. Oh, well, we didn't say what I'm. I'm going to say is my worst um, because the, the, the penultimate scene where Miss Moneypenny kisses Bond <laughs> yeah, in the VR, yeah. and then this is the set, the callback where we're, we're tricked a second time. Although we know because we can't imagine this happening, it's still weird how long it goes on for, and then. Q walks in on her, and then she's it, she's been undressing herself while she's been doing mm. it. It's such a cr- odd, unpleasant. Just it just spoils, and you, you know you couldn't m- imagine the money penny before um, Samantha Bond or after Samantha Bond doing uh, uh, doing this. It just felt it just feels completely wrong for that character. Yeah. It cheapens the character, doesn't it's it? An she's, utter, she's utter betrayal, yeah. utter betrayal of money penny. Yeah. 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 So yeah, yeah. That, that's got to be my worst scene, even worse than the in the than the, the CG. So yeah, I think that's more unforgivable. I agree. Yeah, yeah, agree. Uh, I think I think the biggest problem with it, uh, people will talk about largely the CGI scenes as being the main problem in this film. It's not that I, I can forgive crap CGI. It's not a problem. I've, there's many films I like that have got crap CGI, but they're redeemable. It's just the really lame scripting with most of the main characters especially Brosnan and Jinx they speak entirely in one-liners they don't even have a conversation one just says a one-liner the other one responds with a one-liner normally that don't relate to each other that's so that's for me I think it would and it would have been so easy to fix a lot of those issues it's just you could just send us the script and gone well that's stupid that's stupid that's stupid I don't know how they all got through (laughs) watching the film this time I thought that I totally agree with you that they, 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 everything they say is a one-liner to each other, double entendre, that you could absolutely put those lines into an Austin Powers movie and it would make no difference. It yes. would absolutely work yes. in an Austin Powers film. And that's not and what this, Bond's this, supposed this to be. Out, this came out the same year as, is it Goldmember it came out as? Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, which did, yeah, which was a hugely popular film. But you're right, it's like, Austin Powers is trying to make fun of these films and it's just doing the same thing that Austin Powers is doing with these lines. But also almost not as well. Like there's actually some thought behind the lines in Austin Powers, whereas these it's just random. Well the difference is Austin Powers, Madonna gave them a decent song for that franchise. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, well let's start wrapping things up then. Brendan, have you got a question for Chris? So tell us about your podcast, Clash of the Titles. How did that come about? 
Uh, I, I'm friends with a, a, a film journalist, presenter Alex Zane, and um, we wanted to do something together film-wise, and so we came up with a concept, which is where we take two movies with something in common, put them head-to-head, you know, analyse them in, in much the way you guys do and then at the end decide which one did it better so and we brought along a screenwriter Vicky Crompton so we wouldn't just be two middle-aged men talking about films and yeah and so that's been it yeah we've been doing it two years we try to mix up the films a bit we try to hit all genres try to hit a few different eras we just did our first live show where we decided to go down a more humorous route and we did How the Duck and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> So it was Aquatic Superheroes was the link there. <laughs> and amazingly, Alex voted for Blooming How the Duck, which blew my mind because it's just unwatchable. John Barry score. John Barry score, indeed. Yeah, which is odd. Um, <laughs> John Barry score. And also, oh gosh, um, oh, I've forgotten that. But there's a funk score on it as well. And you've got George Clinton involved. He wrote the song How the Duck. Wow. So a lot of weird stuff going on there. But yeah, yeah. Uh, we're doing one I've been wanting to do since the start of the show uh, tomorrow. We're doing um, the Hunger Games versus Battle Royale. Ah, fantastic. So I'm super mm. pumped for that. So, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what it is. And what have been your favourite or most surprising of the clashes that you've covered? I think you've just answered your favourite with Power of the Duck. Yeah, yeah. Well, I tell you what's been the surprising thing is that I thought... We initially thought, is it going to be a bad movie podcast where we were kind of laughing at, at rubbish films, talking about rubbish films from our past, like Howard the Duck. But we slowly but surely dipped our toes in the waters of sort of taking on classics uh, and serious films. And we found that we can have fun with them as well. And so, you know, we did Chinatown and LA Confidential. Um, we recently did um, Butch Cash and Sundance Kid, and we paired that with Thelma and Louise. And we got Anna Smith on from the feminist podcast Girls on Film. And so that was interesting, really going deep with that. And yeah, so it's, you know, that's been a nice surprise that we, um you know, because we really, we think of ourselves as a comedy podcast as much as a film podcast. And so the fact that we can hit some of those tougher movies and still have fun with them has been really lovely. And yeah, I guess the, the surprise one was, or the one that basically, the one that Alex won't stop talking about, he's still moaning about 18 months later is that we decided to pit alien against aliens and um alien one and because vicky and i voted for that movie and he's still 18 months later still annoyed wow aliens didn't win which which one's better alien or aliens guys alien alien (laughs) excellent thank you i mean it's not like aliens is a bad film that was the thing it's just you know you Push comes to shove it. It's a nice debate for you know film fans yeah. to have, and yeah, hard to put something a, a cigarette paper between them, really. You, but I was looking, Chris. You, you haven't done any Bond films yet, is that right? Yeah, we were trying to figure out how to approach it, and um, I think what we were we were thinking of waiting until No Time to Die came out, potentially doing that, or or the, the way I was thinking is maybe we'll do Goldeneye versus Casino Royale to compare the first Brosnan with the first Craig, because it's tricky just figuring out how when we've only got two films yeah how to pare it down but i thought we might have something in the works that's a bit bigger and so i'm kind of saving bond for for, for that well, which i had a couple of build. suggestions for you oh great great casino royale versus casino royale okay does that mean i'd have to watch the original casino royale <laughs> yes yeah i think we all know I that's just oh, i don't even know where you'd start with that 
<laughs> It'd be fun. But I mean, I haven't seen the original since I was a kid and I hated it so much when I was a child. Is it? Is it cool and funny? And No. I don't, I don't mind it. Okay. I don't mind it. It's, it's, I was trying to explain to these two that in that time period, there was a lot of films around that were very similar. It's only because it's a Bond film that mm. people pick out as being this is really rubbish, but it's because it's re- relevant to a Bond film. If you watch it with just sort of a, a head-on for that era of films, it's pretty much the same as a load of other stuff that came out then. It isn't too bad like that. Uh, What's up? Pussycats or whatever it's called. Same producer, yeah. isn't I love it? David yeah. Niven. I love David Niven, mm. but yeah, yeah I just... I just what else, Tom? What else uh, the, the other one was Thunderball versus Never Say Never Again. Oh, yeah. Because they're based on the same script. That's good. That's, That's good. good. Yeah. That's um, very good, Which Tom. I thought would be a good uh, a good way of um, trying it. Obviously, got Sean Connery in both of them as well. Um, but, yeah, you can have those for free, Chris. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I guess but let's finish up with the, the eternal question, Brendan. We ask every guest this one. Oh, no. Who do you think should be the next James Bond? Oh. And what direction do you think they should take it in? Wow, I didn't know this was coming. Oh. Um, can I say who I thought it should be 10 years ago? Because I haven't got an opinion now. That'll do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I, I love Chiwetel Ejiofor. And I, I just always thought he would be the first black Bond. And I thought he would be brilliant in the role. But equally, sometimes I worry about an actor that takes Bond. You lose about at least 10 years worth of great acting from them because these things last three years and you've got to do four or five of them. And I'd be, I think he makes such interesting choices that, you know, we might lose him, but Mm. yeah, he would be, I guess he could still play the role now. He's, you know, he's 10 years on now, but um, yeah, he's my guy. That's that's interesting. I like the concept that for your Bond pick, you don't pick the best person because you want to see them in other films. You pick maybe somebody who's a few (laughs) rings lower. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe someone who's not, you know, particularly established. But I can remember actually when I um when I when I went to um an early screen a very 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 early screening of a of a of a rough cut of Layer Cake. I came out of the screening and phoned up my office and said, "I've just seen the next James Bond. We've got to get this guy on our cover." It was a really interesting moment, you know, where and I think everyone had that opinion once they saw Layer Cake. But it was exciting being in that room and thinking, "Wow, that is an audition and a really strong one." And what we didn't of... end up putting him on the cover. I think we ended up putting Sienna Miller on the cover because she was in that film, and it was when it was when Hot Dog was putting women in bikinis on the cover. So it was a bit yeah. depressing, really. Wow. And and what about the the sort of tone and direction? Obviously, we've had a very sort of specific tone and direction for the Daniel Craig era. Do you think we'll continue along that path, or do you think it's time for another? I'd shift? like to see a period one. I'd really like to see a one-off set in the sixties. I think that would yeah. be really good fun and might reinvigorate things before we sort of press on because they've done such a good job. Well, I say that I really like the Craig Bond and when it works, I think it's absolutely brilliant. So I think just to refresh things, I think that would be a fun direction to go in. So do you have anyone you'd like to play a period Bond? Putting him on the spot again here. Yeah. Yeah, I think Dan Stevens would be a good period Bond because he's done the period dramas already. He's done Downton. I think he's got the... You don't want a Downton Bond. But he did. But, That's not, but he did his. I, I, wait, he did his like 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 Daniel Craig. He did the guest, which felt like his yes. James Bond audition. And so we've mm. seen him, you know, be the cool assassin, um, looking dapper. And yeah, I think I, I'm. Thank you, Tom. 
for answering my question. <laughs> well, well listen, you've got a bit of time before this comes out. If you change your mind, we'll just edit in uh, a name um, that um, <laughs> right. yeah, we can put in. But Chris, how do people find you online? And what, what is it you're sort of um, working on at the moment? At Tilly Tweets is my Twitter and uh, ClashPod is at ClashPod is, is where we are on Instagram and Twitter and yeah that's my main focus at the moment so have a listen to the podcast let us know what you think what films we should do next we're doing horror in october we're doing christmas movies in december and then january we let the listeners pick the pairings so people can get involved then and it's called clash of the titles it's on all, all podcast services right and uh, is there a video yeah. element to it as well we post uh no we post clips on on instagram and twitter but uh we've not done the youtubes yet so um it's just all audio at the moment really yeah it's a fantastic podcast well well worth uh checking out but thank you so much for coming on chris i really appreciate it um nice to have a little mini chris and i used to do a podcast many many years ago together um so this has been uh it's been really nice um it feels like it less drunk than we maybe used to do our podcasts <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a bad idea after lunch on a friday <laughs> Hey, um, let's let's hope our podcast can do as much numbers as those podcasts used to do, though. Tom. That, yes, yeah, that was the dream. That's the dream. That's the dream. See, uh, that's will be it. Reunited. This is this is what will happen. This is striking gold, isn't it? Um, yeah, like finding a, a, a diamond mine in uh, in Iceland. Um, <laughs> Very good. Good call back. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, Brett, uh, Wheatley, how can people uh, get in touch with the show if they want to email us? Podcast at jamesmondatez.co.uk on email and Brendan on social. At James Bond A to Z on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We will be back uh, next time, probably talking about No Time to Die if this comes out in the right order. And until then, thank you very much for listening. Please leave us a good rating wherever you are and like and subscribe. And yeah, James Bond, uh, the James Bond A to Z podcast will return. Thanks a lot. Ciao. <laughs> the James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Inglemels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.